Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with our new book, Curriculum of the Basic Principles of Marxism-Leninism. We're currently going through an introduction to the basic principles of Marxism itself. I won't rehash everything I said at the start of last episode, but a quick reminder that all of their extensive annotations that explain a lot of context for stuff that is mentioned in the main text of this textbook, there are timestamps in the episode description that will tell you when those annotations start and stop in case you want to skip around, skip past them, etc. But without any more delay, let's hop in and start reading. Theoretical Premises The birth of Marxism not only resulted from the objective requirement of history, it was also the result of inheriting the quintessence of various previously established frameworks of human philosophical theory, such as German classical philosophy, British classical political economics, and utopianism in France and Britain. Annotation 6 In the original Vietnamese, the word Ting Hoa is used, which we roughly translate to the word quintessence throughout this book. Literally, it means the best, highest, most beautiful, defining characteristics of a concept. And unlike the English word quintessence, it has an exclusively positive connotation. Quintessence should not be confused with the universal category of essence, with a capital E, which is discussed much later in the book. German classical philosophy, especially the philosophies of George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, footnote 5, and Ludwig Feuerbach, footnote 6, had deeply influenced the formation of the Marxist worldview and philosophical methodology. Annotation 7 German classical philosophy was a movement of idealist philosophers of the 18th and 19th centuries. Idealism is a philosophical position that holds that the only reliable experience of reality occurs within the human consciousness. Idealists believe that human reason is the best way to seek truth, and that consciousness is thus the only reliable source of knowledge and information. One of Hegel's important achievements was his critique of the metaphysical method. Annotation 8 Metaphysics is a branch of philosophy that attempts to explain the fundamental nature of reality by classifying things, phenomena, and ideas into various categories. Metaphysical philosophy has taken many forms through the centuries, but one common shortcoming of metaphysical thought is a tendency to view things and ideas in a static, abstract manner. Metaphysical positions view nature as a collection of objects and phenomena, which are isolated from one another and fundamentally unchanging. Engels explained the problems of metaphysics in Socialism, Utopian, and Scientific. Quote, the analysis of nature into its individual parts, the grouping of the different natural processes and objects in definite classes, the study of the internal anatomy of organized bodies in their manifold forms. These were the fundamental conditions of the gigantic strides in our knowledge of nature that have been made during the last 400 years. But this method of work has also left us as legacy the habit of observing natural objects and processes in isolation, apart from their connection with the vast whole, of observing them in repose, not in motion, as constraints, not as essentially variables, in their death, not in their life. 
But when this way of looking at things was transferred by Bacon and Locke from natural science to philosophy, it begot the narrow metaphysical mode of thought peculiar to the last century. End quote. Francis Bacon, 1561-1626, is considered the father of empiricism, which is the belief that knowledge can only be derived from the human sensory experience. See Annotation 10. Bacon argued that scientific knowledge could only be derived through inductive reasoning in which specific observations are used to form general conclusions. John Locke, 1632-1704, was another early empiricist who was heavily influenced by Francis Bacon. Locke, too, was an empiricist and is considered to be the father of liberalism. Engels was highly critical of the application of metaphysical philosophy to natural science. As Engels continues in Socialism, Utopian and Scientific, quote, To the metaphysician, things and their mental reflexes, ideas, are isolated, are to be considered one after the other and apart from each other, are objects of investigation fixed, rigid, given once for all. He thinks in absolutely irreconcilable antitheses. For him, a thing either exists or does not exist. A thing cannot, at the same time, be itself and something else. Positive and negative absolutely exclude one another. Cause and effect stand in a rigid antithesis, one to the other. At first sight, this mode of thinking seems to us very luminous because it is that of so-called sound common sense. Only sound common sense, respectable fellow that he is, in the homely realm of his own four walls, has very wonderful adventures. Directly he ventures out into the wide world of research, and the metaphysical mode of thought, justifiable and necessary as it is in a number of domains whose extent varies according to the nature of the particular object of investigation, sooner or later reaches a limit, beyond which it becomes one-sided, restricted, abstract, lost in insoluble contradictions. In the contemplation of individual things, it forgets the connection between them. In the contemplation of their existence, it forgets the beginning and end of that existence, of their repose. It forgets their motion. It cannot see the wood for the trees. End quote. Dialectical materialism stands in contrast to metaphysics in many ways. Rather than splitting the world into distinct, isolated categories, dialectical materialist philosophy seeks to view the world in terms of relationships, motion, and change. Dialectical materialism also refutes the hard empiricism of Bacon and Locke by describing a dialectical relationship between the material world and consciousness. For the first time in the history of human philosophy, Hegel expressed the content of dialectics in strict arguments with a system of rules and categories. Annotation 9. Dialectics is a philosophical methodology which searches for truth by examining contradictions and relationships between things, objects, and ideas. Ancient dialecticians, such as Aristotle and Socrates, explored dialectics primarily through rhetorical discourse between two or more points of view about a subject with the intention of finding truth. In this classical form of dialectics, a thesis is presented, 
This thesis is an opening argument about the subject at hand. An antithesis, or counter-argument, is then presented. Finally, the thesis and antithesis are combined into a synthesis, which is an improvement on both the thesis and antithesis, which brings us closer to truth. Hegel resurrected dialectics in the forefront of philosophical inquiry for the German idealists. As Engels wrote in Socialism, Utopian and Scientific, quote, Hegel's work's greatest merit was the taking up again of dialectics as the highest form of reasoning. The old Greek philosophers were all born natural dialecticians, and Aristotle, the most encyclopedic of them, had already analyzed the most essential forms of dialectic thought. End quote. Hegel's great contribution to dialectics was to develop dialectics from a simple method of examining truth based on discourse into an organized, systematic model of nature and of history. Unfortunately, Hegel's dialectics were idealist in nature. Hegel believed that the ideal served as the primary basis of reality. Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels strongly rejected Hegel's idealism, as well as the strong influences of Christian theology on Hegel's work, but they also saw great potential in his system of dialectics, as Marx explained in Capital, Volume 1. Quote, The mystification which dialectics suffers in Hegel's hands by no means prevents him from being the first to present its general form of working in a comprehensive and conscious manner. With him it is standing on its head. It must be turned right side up again, if you would discover the rational kernel within the mystical shell. End quote. Starting with a critique of the mysterious idealism of Hegel's philosophy, Marx and Engels inherited the rational kernel of Hegelian dialectics and successfully built materialist dialectics. Annotation 10. In order to understand the ways in which the critique of Hegel's philosophy by Marx and Engels led to the development of dialectical materialism, some background information on materialism and the conflicts between idealist and materialist philosophy in the era of Marx and Engels is needed. Materialism is a philosophical position that holds that the material world exists outside of the mind, and that human ideas and thoughts stem from observations and sensory experience of this external world. Materialism rejects the idealist notion that truth can only be sought through reasoning and human consciousness. The history and development of both idealism and materialism are discussed more in a future section, the opposition of materialism and idealism in solving basic philosophical issues. In the era of Marx and Engels, the leading philosophical school of materialism was known as empiricism. Empiricism holds that we can only obtain knowledge through human sense perception. Marx and Engels were materialists, but they rejected empiricism. One reason Marx and Engels opposed the strict empiricist view was that it made materialism vulnerable to attack from idealists, because it ignored objective relations and knowledge that went beyond sense data. The empiricist point of view also provided the basis for the subjective idealism of George Berkeley. See Future Annotation 32. And the Skepticism of David Hume. 
Berkeley's subjective idealism is empiricist in that it supports the idea that humans can only discover knowledge through direct sense experience. Therefore, Berkeley argues, individuals are unable to obtain any real knowledge about abstract concepts such as matter. Similarly, David Hume's radical skepticism, which Engels called agnosticism, denied the possibility of possessing any concrete knowledge. As Hume wrote in A Treatise on Human Nature, quote, I am ready to reject all belief and reasoning, and can look upon no opinion even as more probable or likely than another. End quote. Hume's radical skepticism lay in his empiricist belief that the only source of knowledge is sense experience. But Hume went a step further, doubting that even sense experience could be reliable, adding, quote, the essence and composition of external bodies are so obscure that we must necessarily in our reasonings, or rather, conjectures concerning them, involve ourselves in contradictions and absurdities. End quote. Later, in the appendix of the same text, Hume argues that conscious reasoning suffers from the same unreliability. Quote, I had entertained some hopes that the intellectual world would be free from those contradictions and absurdities which seem to attend every explication that human reason can give of the material world. End quote. Engels dismissed radical skepticism as, quote, scientifically a regression and practically merely a shamefaced way of surreptitiously accepting materialism while denying it before the world. End quote. Engels directly refutes radical skepticism in Socialism Utopian and Scientific. Quote, How do we know that our senses give us correct representations of the objects we perceive through them? Whenever we speak of objects, or their qualities, of which we cannot know anything for certain, but merely the impressions which they've produced on our senses. Now, this line of reasoning seems undoubtedly hard to beat by mere argumentation, but before there was argumentation, there was action, and human action had solved the difficulty long before human ingenuity invented it. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. From the moment we turn to our own use these objects, according to the qualities we perceive in them, we put to an infallible test the correctness or otherwise of our sense perception." End quote. This concept of determining the truth of knowledge and perception through practical experience is fundamental in dialectical materialist philosophy and the methodology of materialist dialectics, and is discussed in further detail in chapter 3. Another weakness of empiricism is that it denies the objectiveness of social relations, which cannot be fully and properly analyzed through sensory experience and observation alone. Marx saw that social relations are, indeed, objective in nature and can be understood despite their lack of sensory observability, and that doing so is vital in comprehending subjects such as political economy, as he observes in Capital, Volume 1. Quote, the true reality of the value of commodities contrasts with the gross material reality of these same commodities the reality of which is perceived by our bodily senses, in that not an atom of matter enters into the reality of value. We may twist and turn a commodity this way and that, 
as a thing of value, it still remains unappreciable by our bodily senses. End quote. In other words, Marx pointed out that no amount of sense data about a commodity will fully explain its value. One can know the size, weight, hardness, etc. of a commodity, but without analysing the social relations and other aspects of the commodity which can't be directly observed with the senses, one can never know or understand the true value of the commodity. The materialism of Marx and Engels acknowledges the physical, material world as the first basis for reality. But Marx and Engels also understood that it was vital to account for other aspects of rational knowledge, such as social relations. Marx and Engels believed that empiricist materialism had roughly the same flaw as idealism, a lack of connection between the material and consciousness. While the idealists completely dismissed sense data and relied exclusively on reasoning and consciousness, the empiricists dismissed conscious thought to focus solely on what could be sensed. It is important to note that while Marx and Engels rejected empiricism, they did not reject empirical knowledge, nor empirical data, which is collected from scientific observation. See Annotation 216. On the contrary, empirical data was key to the works of Marx and Engels in developing dialectical materialism. As Lenin explained, quote, Marx took one of the economic foundations of society, the system of commodity production, and on the basis of a vast mass of data which he studied for not less than 25 years, gave a most detailed analysis of the laws governing this formation and its development. End quote. And so, the dialectical materialism of Marx and Engels served to bridge the gap between idealism and materialism. They believed that our conscious thoughts are derived from material processes, but that consciousness can also influence the material world. This is discussed in more detail in the section Materialism and Dialectical Materialism. Marx and Engels also criticized many limitations of Feuerbach's methodology and viewpoint, especially Feuerbach's prescriptions for how to deal with social problems, but they also highly appreciated the role of Feuerbach's thought in the fight against idealism and religion to assert that nature comes first and that nature is permanent and independent from human willpower. Feuerbach's atheism and materialism offered an important foundation for Marx and Engels to develop from an idealist worldview into a materialist worldview, which led them directly to developing the philosophical foundation of communism. Annotation 12. Ludwig Feuerbach was one of the young Hegelians who adapted and developed the ideals of Hegel and other German idealists. Feuerbach was a humanist materialist. He focused on humans and human nature and the roles of humans in the material world. Like Marx and Engels, Feuerbach dismissed the religious mysticism of Hegel. Importantly, Feuerbach broke from Hegel's religious mystical belief that humans descended from supernatural origins, instead describing humans as originating from the natural, material world. Feuerbach also distinguished between the objectivity of the material external world and the subjectivity of human conscious thought, and he drew a distinction between external reality, as it really exists, and external reality as humans perceive it. 
for Avak believed that human nature was rooted in specific, intrinsic human attributes and activities. As Furavak explains in The Essence of Christianity, quote, What then is the nature of man, of which he is conscious, or what constitutes the specific distinction, the proper humanity of man? Reason, will, affection. End quote. Furabach explained that the actions of thinking, willing, and loving, which correspond to the essential characteristics of reason, will, and love, are what define humanity. Continuing, quote, Reason, will, love are not powers which man possesses, for he is nothing without them. He is what he is only by them. They are the constituent elements of his nature, which he neither has nor makes, the animating, determining, governing powers, divine, absolute powers, to which he can oppose no resistance. End quote. In his collected works, Feuerbach further explains that materialism is supported by the fact that nature predates human consciousness. Quote, Natural science, at least in its present state, necessarily leads us back to a point when the conditions for human existence were still absent, when nature, i.e. the earth, was not yet an object of the human eye and mind, when, consequently, nature was an absolutely non-human entity. Absolute unmenschlich Wesen. Idealism may retort, but nature also is something thought of by you. Von dir gedacht. Certainly, but from this it does not follow that this nature did not at one time actually exist, just as from the fact that Socrates and Plato do not exist for me if I do not think of them, it does not follow that Socrates and Plato did not actually at one time exist without me. End quote. Marx and Engels were heavily influenced by Feuerbach's materialism, but they took issue with Feuerbach's sharp focus on human attributes and activities in isolation from the external material world. As Marx wrote in Theses on Feuerbach, quote, The chief defect of all hitherto existing materialism, that of Feuerbach included, is that reality is conceived only in the form of the object but not as sensuous human activity, end quote. Sensuous human activity has a very specific meaning to Marx. It grew from two conflicting schools of thought. The idealists believe the external world can only be understood through the active subjective thought processes of human beings, while the empiricist materialists believed that human beings are passive subjects of the material world. Marx synthesized these contradicting ideas into what he called sensuous activity, which balanced idealist and materialist philosophical concepts. According to Marx, humans are simultaneously active in the world in the sense that our conscious activity can transform the world, and passive in the sense that all human thoughts fundamentally derive from observation and sense experience of the material world. See chapter 2. So, Marx and Engels believed that Feuerbach was misguided in defining human nature by our traits alone, portraying the essence of man as isolated from the material world and from social relations. In addition, Feuerbach's humanism was based on an abstract, ideal version of human beings, whereas the humanism of Marx and Engels is firmly rooted in the reality of real men living real lives. 
As Engels wrote in Ludwig Feuerbach and the End of Classical German Philosophy, quote, He clings fiercely to nature and man, but nature and man remain mere words with him. He is incapable of telling us anything definite, either about real nature or real men. But from the abstract man of Feuerbach, one who arrives at real living men only when one considers them as participants in history, the cult of abstract man, which formed the kernel of Feuerbach's new religion, had to be replaced by the science of real men and of their historical development. This further development of Feuerbach's standpoint beyond Feuerbach was inaugurated by Marx in 1845 in The Holy Family. End quote. Footnote 7. Marx and Engels believed that human nature could only be understood by examining the reality of actual humans in the real world through our relationships with each other, with nature, and with the external material world. Importantly, it was Marx's critique of Feuerbach which led him to define political action as the key pursuit of philosophy, with these immortal words from Theses on Feuerbach. Quote, Philosophers have hitherto only interpreted the world in various ways. The point is to change it. End quote. The British classical political economics, represented by such economists as Adam Smith, footnote 8, and David Ricardo, footnote 9, also contributed to the formation of Marxism's historical materialist conception. Smith and Ricardo were some of the first to form theories about labor value in the study of political economics. They made important conclusions about value and the origin of profit, and about the importance of material production and rules that govern economies. However, because there were still many limitations in the study methodology of Smith and Ricardo, these British classical political economists failed to recognize the historical characteristic of value, the internal contradictions of commodity production, and the duality of commodity production labor. Annotation 13. Historical Characteristic of Value Marx generally admired the work of Smith and Ricardo, but saw major flaws which undermined the utility of their classical economic theories. Perhaps chief among these flaws, according to Marx, was a tendency for Smith and Ricardo to uphold an ahistoric view of society and capitalism. In other words, classical economists see capitalism as existing in harmony with the external and universal laws of nature, rather than seeing capitalism as a result of historical processes of development. See Future Annotation 114. Marx did not believe that the economic principles of capitalism resulted from nature, but rather from historical conflict between different classes. He believed that the principles of political economies changed over time, and would continue to change into the future, whereas Smith and Ricardo saw economic principles as fixed, static concepts that were not subject to change over time. As Marx explains in The Poverty of Philosophy, Quote, economists express the relations of bourgeois production, the division of labor, credit, money, etc., as fixed, immutable, external categories. Economists explain how production takes place in the above-mentioned relations 
but what they do not explain is how these relations themselves are produced, that is, the historical movement that gave them birth. These categories are as little eternal as the relations they express, their historical and transitory products. End quote. <coughs> Internal contradictions of commodity production. In Marx's terms, a commodity is specifically something that has both a use value and a value form. See future annotation 14. But in simpler terms, a commodity is anything that can be bought or sold. Importantly, capitalism transforms human labor into a commodity, as workers must sell their labor to capitalists in exchange for wages. Marx pointed out that contradictions arise when commodities are produced under capitalism, because capitalists, who own the means of production, decide what to produce based solely on what they believe to be most profitable. The commodities that are being produced do not always meet the actual needs of society. Certain commodities are underproduced, while others are overproduced, which leads to crisis and instability. Duality of Commodity Production Labor In Capital, Marx describes commodity production labor as existing in a duality. That is to say, it exists with two distinct aspects. First, there is abstract labor, which Marx describes as, quote, labor power expended without regard to the form of its expenditure, end quote. This is simply the expenditure of human energy in the form of labor without any regard to production or value of the labor output. Second, there is concrete labor, which is the aspect of labor that refers to the production of a specific commodity with a specific value through labor. Marx argues that human labor, therefore, is simultaneously an activity which will produce some specific kind of product, and also an activity that generates value in the abstract. Marx and Engels were the first economists to discuss the duality of labor, and their observations on the duality of labor were closely tied to their theories of the different aspects of value, use value, exchange value, etc., which was key to their analysis of capitalism. Smith and Ricardo also failed to distinguish between simple commodity production and capitalist commodity production, and could not accurately analyze the form of value in capitalist commodity production. Annotation 14. Commodity Production. Simple commodity production, also known as petty commodity production, is the production of commodities under the conditions which Marx called the simple exchange of commodities. Simple exchange occurs when individual producers trade the products they have made directly themselves for other commodities. Under simple exchange, workers directly own their own means of production and sell products which they have made with their own labor. Simple commodity production and simple exchange use what Marx referred to as C16M16C mode of circulation. See future annotation 60. Circulation is simply the way in which commodities and money are exchanged for one another. CMC stands for commodity money commodity. So with simple commodity production and simple exchange, workers produce commodities, which they then sell for money, which they use to buy other commodities which they need. For example, a brewer might make beer, which they sell for money, which they use to buy food, housing, and other commodities which they need to live. 
In the CMC mode of circulation, the producers and consumers of commodities have a direct relationship to the commodities which are being bought and sold. The sellers have produced the commodities sold with their own labor, and they directly consume the commodities which they purchase with the money they thus obtained. Capitalist commodity production and capitalist exchange, on the other hand, are based on the MCM mode of circulation. MCM stands for money, commodity, more money. Under this mode of circulation, capitalists spend money to buy commodities, including the commodified labor of workers, with the intention of selling commodities for more money than they began with. The capitalist has no direct relationship to the commodity being produced and sold, and the capitalist is solely interested in obtaining more money. Capitalist commodity production, therefore, uses the MCM mode of circulation, in which capitalists own the means of production and pay wages to workers in exchange for their labor, which is used to produce commodities. The capitalists then sell these commodities for profits which are not shared with the workers who provided the labor which produced the commodities. Value form. This is one of the most important and potentially most confusing concepts in all of Marx's analysis of capitalism. Marx explains these principles at length in Appendix of the First German Edition of Capital, Volume 1, but here are some of the fundamentals. One of Marx's key breakthroughs was understanding that commodities have many different properties which have different effects in political economies. Just as commodity production labor exists in a duality of concrete labor and abstract labor, commodities themselves also exist in duality according to Marx. Commodities have both use value and value. Use value, which corresponds to concrete labor, is the commodity's tangible form of existence. It is what we can physically sense when we observe a commodity. By extension, use value encompasses how a commodity can be used in the material world. Value, or the value form, is the social form of a commodity, which is to say it represents the stable relationships intrinsic to the commodity. See content and form. Note that this relates to the dialectical relationship between the material and the ideal, see the relationship between matter and consciousness. Value forms represent relational equivalencies of commodities, i.e. 20 yards of linen is equivalent to 10 pounds of tea. These relational equivalencies are tied to the equivalent labor value. See future annotation 15 and future annotation 26, used to produce these commodities. The value form of a commodity is the social form because it embodies relational equivalencies. 1. The value form represents the relationship between the commodity and the labor which was used to produce the commodity. 2. The value form represents the relationship between a commodity and one or more other commodities. As Marx explains in Appendix to the First German Edition of Capital, quote, Hence, by virtue of its value form, the commodity now stands also in a social relation no longer to only a single other type of commodity, but to the world of commodities. As a commodity, it is a citizen of this world. End quote. 
Understanding the social form of commodities, the value form, was crucial for Marx to develop a deeper understanding of money and capitalism. Marx argued that classical economists like Ricardo and Smith conflated economic categories such as exchange value, value, price, money, etc., which meant that they could not possibly fully understand or analyze capitalist economies. British classical political economists like Ricardo and Smith outlined the scientific factors of the theories of labor value and contributed many progressive thoughts which Marx adapted and further developed. Annotation 15 Adam Smith and David Ricardo revolutionized the labor theory of value, which held that the value of a good or service is determined by the amount of human labor required to produce it. Thus, Marx was able to solve the contradictions that these economists could not solve, and he was able to establish the theory of surplus value, scientific evidence for the exploitative nature of capitalism, and economic factors which will lead to the eventual fall of capitalism and the birth of socialism. Annotation 16. David Ricardo developed the concept of surplus value. Surplus value is the difference between the amount of income made from selling a product and the amount it costs to produce it. Marx would go on to expand on the concept of surplus value considerably. Utopianism has been developing for a long time and reached its peak in the late 18th century with famous thinkers such as Henri de Saint-Simon, footnote 10, François-Marie-Charles Fourier, footnote 11, and Robert Owen, footnote 12. Utopianism sought to elevate the humanitarian spirit and strongly criticized capitalism by calling attention to the misery of the working class under capitalism. It also offered many far-ranging opinions and analyses of the development of human history and laid out some basic foundational factors and principles for a new society. However, utopianism could not scientifically address the nature of capitalism. It failed to detect the law of development of capitalism. Footnote 13. And also failed to recognize the roles and missions of the working class as a social force that can eliminate capitalism to build an equal, non-exploitative society. Annotation 17. The early industrial working class existed in miserable conditions, and the political movement of utopianism was developed by people who believed that a better world could be built. The utopianists believed they could create a new mortal world of happiness, enlightenment, and prosperity through education, science, technology, and communal living. For instance, Robert Owen was a wealthy textile manufacturer who tried to build a better society for workers in New Harmony, Indiana, in the USA. Owen purchased the entire town of New Harmony in 1825 as a place to build an ideal society. Owen's vision failed after two years for a variety of reasons, and many other wealthy capitalists in the early 19th century drew up similar plans which also failed. Utopianism was one of the first political and industrial movements that criticized the conditions of capitalism by exposing the miserable situations of poor workers and offering a vision of a better society, and was one of the first movements to attempt to mitigate the faults of capitalism in practice. 
Unfortunately, the utopianists were not ideologically prepared to replace capitalism, and all of their attempts to build a better alternative to capitalism failed. Marx and Engels admired the efforts of the utopianist movement and studied their attempts and failures closely in developing their own political theories, concluding that the utopianists failed in large part because they did not understand how capitalism developed, nor the role of the working class in the revolution against capitalism. As Engels wrote in Socialism, Utopian and Scientific, quote, the historical situation also dominated the founders of socialism. To the crude conditions of capitalistic production and the crude class conditions correspond crude theories. The solution of the social problems, which as yet lay hidden in undeveloped economic conditions, the utopians attempted to evolve out of the human brain. Society presented nothing but wrongs. To remove these was the task of reason. It was necessary, then, to discover a new and more perfect system of social order and to impose this upon society from without by propaganda, and, wherever it was possible, by the example of model experiments. These new social systems were foredoomed as utopian. The more completely they were worked out in detail, the more they could not avoid drifting off into pure fantasies. End quote. Engels is explaining here that, in a sense, the utopian socialists were victims of arriving too early. Capitalism had not yet developed enough for its opponents to formulate plans based on actual material conditions, since capitalism was only just emerging into a stable form. Without a significant objective, material basis, the utopians were forced to rely upon reasoning alone to confront capitalism. In this sense, the early historical utopianists fell into philosophical utopianism in its broader sense, defined by the mistaken assertion that the ideal can determine the material. See annotation 95. In believing they could build a perfect society based on ideals and pure fantasy alone, without a material basis for development, the utopians were, in essence, idealists. As Engels explained, quote, From this nothing could come but a kind of eclectic, average socialism. End quote. Engels concluded that in order to successfully overthrow capitalism, revolution would need to be grounded in materialism. Quote, to make a science of socialism, it had first to be placed upon a real basis. End quote. The humanitarian spirit and compassionate analysis which the utopians embodied in their efforts to lay out concrete features of a better society became important theory premises for the birth of the scientific theory of socialism in Marxism. Natural Science Premise Along with social economic conditions and theory premises, the achievements of the natural sciences were also foundational to the development of arguments and evidence which assert the correctness of Marxism's viewpoints and methodology. Annotation 18. Natural science is science which deals with the natural world, including chemistry, biology, physics, geology, etc. Three major scientific breakthroughs which were important to the development of Marxism include 
The law of conservation and transformation of energy scientifically proved the inseparable relationships and the mutual transformation and conservation of all the forms of motion of matter in nature. The theory of evolution offered a scientific basis for the development of diverse forms of life through natural selection. Cell theory was a scientific basis proving unity in terms of origins, physical forms, and material structures of living creatures. It also explained the development of life through those relationships. These scientific discoveries led to the rejection of theological and metaphysical viewpoints, which centered the role of the creator in the pursuit of truth. Annotation 19. For centuries in Europe, natural science and philosophy had been heavily dominated by theological viewpoints, which centered God in the pursuit of truth. Descartes, Kant, Spinoza, and many other metaphysical philosophers who developed the earliest theories of modern natural science centered their religious beliefs in their philosophies. These theological viewpoints varied in many ways, but all shared a characteristic of centering a creator in the pursuit of philosophical and scientific inquiry. Together, the law of conservation and transformation of energy, the law of evolution, and cell theory provided an alternative viewpoint which allowed scientists to remove the creator from the scientific equation. For the first time, natural scientists and philosophers had concrete theoretical explanations for the origin and development of the universe, life, and reality which did not rely on a supernatural creator. Marx and Engels closely observed and studied the groundbreaking scientific progress of their era. They believed strongly in materialist scientific methods and the data which they produced, and based their analysis and philosophical doctrines on such observations. They recognized the importance and validity of the scientific achievements of their era, and they developed the philosophy of dialectical materialism into a system which would help humans study and understand the whole material world. In Socialism, Utopian and Scientific, Engels explained that ancient Greek dialecticians had correctly realized that the world is, quote, an endless entanglement of relations and reactions, permutations and combinations, in which nothing remains what, where, and as it was, but everything moves, changes, comes into being, and passes away." End quote. Engels goes on to explain that it was understandable for early natural scientists to break their inquiries and analysis down into specialized fields and categories of science to focus on precise, specific, narrow subject matters so that they could build up a body of empirical data. However, as data accumulated, it became clear that all of these isolated individual fields of study must somehow be unified back together coherently and cohesively in order to obtain a deeper and more useful understanding of reality. As Engels wrote in On Dialectics, quote, Empirical natural science has accumulated such a tremendous mass of positive material for knowledge that the necessity of classifying it in each separate field of investigation, systematically and in accordance with its inner interconnection, has become absolutely imperative. It is becoming equally imperative to bring the individual spheres of knowledge into the correct connection with one another. 
In doing so, however, natural science enters the field of theory, and here the methods of empiricism will not work. Here only theoretical thinking can be of assistance. End quote. As science grows increasingly complex, a necessity develops for a philosophical and cognitive framework which can be used to make sense of the influx of information from disparate fields. In Dialectics of Nature, Engels explains how dialectical materialism is the perfect philosophical foundation for unifying scientific fields into one cohesive framework. Quote, Dialectics divested of mysticism becomes an absolute necessity for natural science, which has forsaken the field where rigid categories sufficed, which represent, as it were, the lower mathematics of logic, its everyday weapons. End quote. So Marx and Engels developed dialectical materialism not in opposition to science, but as a way to make better use of scientific data, and to analyze the complex, dynamic, constantly changing systems of the world in motion. While distinct scientific discoveries and empirical data are invaluable, each data point only provides a small amount of information within a single, narrow, specific field of science. Dialectical materialism allows humans to view reality, as a whole, in motion, and to examine the interconnections and mutual developments between different fields and categories of human knowledge. These scientific principles confirm the correctness of the dialectical materialist view of the material world, with such features as endlessness, self-existence, self-motivation, and self-transformation. They also confirm the scientific nature of the dialectical materialist viewpoint in both material processes and thought processes. Annotation 20. Endlessness refers to the infinite span of space and time in our universe. Self-existence means that our universe exists irrespective of human consciousness. It existed before human consciousness evolved, and it will continue to exist after human consciousness becomes extinct. Self-motivation and self-transformation refer to the fact that motion and transformation exist within the universe independent of human consciousness. Engels wrote of the scientific nature of the dialectical materialist viewpoint in Socialism Utopian and Scientific. Quote, Nature is the proof of dialectics, and it must be said for modern science that it has furnished this proof with very rich materials increasingly daily, and has shown that Nature works dialectically and not metaphysically, that she does not move in the eternal oneness of a perpetually recurring circle, but goes through a real historical evolution. In conclusion, the birth of Marxism is a phenomenon which is compatible with scientific principles. It is the product of the social-economic conditions of its time of origin, of the human knowledge expressed in scientific at that time, and it is also the result of its founder's creative thinking and humanitarian spirit. And that is going to do it for this week. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find more of his work on the soundimage.org. And this show is also hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts. 
You can also support the network at patreon.com slash abnormalmapping. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.